Tardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Well, it's been a few weeks since I've been on my microphone and I've really missed it. And I really appreciate the notes from you guys that said that you missed it too, whether it was via LinkedIn or email, asking where and how I was and just saying that you were looking forward to a new episode and here it is guys. And I think it was worth the wait. I will get into that in a minute, but I just needed to focus on a few other priorities, but I don't plan on taking another break for a while. I really enjoy the consistency of being able to share information. And I know a lot of you guys do too. I'm very humbled that there are several hundred people that listen to this podcast on a regular basis. And I also heard from a few people that got to catch up over the last few weeks too. So um, I'm glad that that was an opportunity for everyone too. And I know with the summer underway, at least in the States and in this side of the world, you know, you're busy. So maybe you don't have time to listen to a podcast a week anyway, but I will be here for you for the next several weeks. Um, and even months, I've got some really great episodes planned on topics that have been requested often and really looking for looking forward to developing this a little bit more and just getting back into the consistency. I got to go on my, so as part of the last few weeks, I got to go on my first post-COVID vaccine work trip. And that was weird. (laughs) Getting on an airplane again just felt so foreign. And prior to the pandemic, I was traveling for work like two, three times a month. So it was really weird, but it was also, you know, a really good opportunity. I Went to Las Vegas, which would not necessarily be on my first, my list of places I'd want to go after being confined or grounded to Seattle for the last almost two years now, year and a half. But I am super humbled uh, and was humbled to be recognized as one of the top 100 global leaders in finance. I was nominated months ago. I found out about it, I think last November, December, I actually first thought it was a scam. I think that's kind of natural, right? For those of us in fraud and also for those of us with imposter syndrome, but it wasn't a scam. It ended up being a really highly regarded conference in finance and fraud is such a small, small sector of finance. So just to be nominated and then selected was really humbling and honoring as well. And I don't necessarily ever feel like I deserve awards. I've never gotten into fraud fighting for awards. I didn't even know any of these existed until I've gotten them. But now I guess I can say I've won two, the Legend of Fraud Award at FraudCon in 2019. And now this one at GCIF 2021. So that was 
really neat, but also just surreal, right? Because I, like I said, I don't do any of the stuff for awards. We may all have a superhero complex, but we don't get into fraud to be recognized or awarded. Often it's the other way around. And I know that, but I am so lucky to have so many people's trust and then also to be able to kind of be the public facing mouthpiece, even though I'm so much more comfortable being behind the computer screen. I kind of feel like I can give voice to people that just can't talk about these things publicly, but they need to be talked about. So I'm honored to have that. Beyond receiving the award, the best part of my trip was spending five days with a fellow fraud fighter. It is my honor and my pleasure to introduce Holly Sandberg. She's the head of credit and fraud for Packy Olin, which she will explain more about in this interview. She's a well-respected leader, both within her company and within the e-commerce industry. She's, I often, she's my go-to for speaking events at CNP or other events that I'm asked for. Often she's highly rated. She just really has a lot to say and a lot of good experience. In this interview, we talk a lot about sports and event ticketing fraud, which is very unique, as well as friendly fraud and chargebacks, how they aren't easy which she'll definitely touch on in this episode. Other topics that we discuss include the importance of evolving strategies for fraud, the need for collaboration externally, how fighting fraud has changed over the last decade. And we do bounce around a little bit and go on tangents. So you'll have a bit of insight into the conversations we had last week. Uh, But I think that you'll follow along, especially if you love these topics about fraud and fraud tactics and attempts and all of that as much as we do. We also didn't get to all the topics that she's passionate about talking about. So I'll be asking her to return soon. With that, I really hope that you enjoy this interview with my friend and fellow fraud fighter, Holly Sandberg. Holly, I am so glad to get you on this podcast. It's funny, we uh, were just in Vegas together, actually, and I packed my podcast microphone, but between you having to put out fires at work and our busy schedule of wanting to take advantage of the city, we didn't ever get a time to... (laughs) set up my microphone and do this. I'm excited for people to learn more about you and learn from your journey. Thank you. I am happy to be here. And I think we both came home and took really, really excessive naps, which I should do after a week in Vegas. Yes, much <laughs> um, needed. Good to go. Caught up on a lot of much needed sleep, but it was also good to avoid that much needed sleep to be in person with someone again, besides the people that I live with, which is uh, you know pretty awesome for all of us these days. I think we can all relate. I know I definitely, when I um, posted a couple of pictures of when we got to have lunch with Alexander Hall, who's been on the podcast twice. And we also had lunch with Julie Ferguson after the award ceremony. I posted pictures. There are a lot of people that were really jealous of us being able to be in person. And I didn't thank the pharmaceutical industry when I accepted my award, but I should have. <laughs> Very grateful that we were able to get the vaccine. And I know we have listeners internationally that have not been able to do that yet. So hopefully they'll get their turn soon. And it was really nice just to have very late night conversations with a fellow fraud fighter and just really nerd out because speaking of the people we live with, I think that they really are sick of hearing us talk about it. But I think they were really happy we had our time too. Agreed. My husband does a a great job of trying hard not to have his eyes glaze over sometimes. (laughs) But actually, just before our trip, he admitted to me at one point, he's honestly just at some point, you get three sentences in and I have no idea what you're talking about anymore. 
he's practiced the nodding and the, the strategic nodding. McLean's had to do that too. But of course, our idea was of fun was talking about complex account takeover issues at two in the morning in Las Vegas. So it's not, we went super wild. We did get to see a show or two. And there are very few people I would want to be my plus one in place of my husband. So I'm glad we got to do that. But there were so many conversations we had that I was, oh, I wish we were doing this on the podcast. I think people would love it. We're going to try to recreate some of them today. <laughs> so first question, and I feel bad when I understand what it's work for a company that nobody recognizes the name that happened to me years ago as a merchant. I feel bad having to ask you to explain what your company does when we're you know out to lunch with people or otherwise. I think it really provides a lot of context and you guys are behind the scenes of some really big venues and events in event ticketing, but not many people recognize it. I think we should start with having you explain what Pacquiolan does and, and what your role is. Please do not apologize. I have learned over time um, to, to be grateful for the fact that you always nudge me to do this because I think sometimes I get lost in my little bubble. I'll back up and explain what we do first and then why I sometimes forget that the name is not only hard to pronounce, hard to spell, <laughs> and a lot that a lot of people don't recognize it. <laughs> Took me what four or five years to be able to say Pacquiolan. I was always saying Paceolan or Paceolan. I don't know. I couldn't say, but you're very patient. We, I will, <laughs> no, no. And I, I let you just purely for my own entertainment value. I watched you probably struggle with, with that for too long <laughs> and could have clued you into the fact that, that we are affectionately known. Um, by most of our large clients, just a pack, which is a whole lot. I was stuck at home during COVID. I had to get entertainment through, you know, somehow. <laughs> uh, it was even long before COVID, too. <laughs> well, as someone that has a really unique name, I try really hard, but I just couldn't. I finally just stopped reading it. That was, I think, the trick. <laughs> we are in uh, primary event ticketing. We are typically behind the scenes, though. So we handle um, both the donation side and the primary event ticketing side for um, the majority of college athletics programs in the United States, uh, as well as for a number of the arenas, the performing arts centers, and also pro sports teams in the NBA and the NHL. So that is why sometimes I forget that the, the name itself, the company's been around for 30 plus, maybe even more than 40 plus years actually now at this point as the primary ticketing partner for, especially in the college athletic space. So if you say the name Pacquiao to UCLA or Stanford or to uh, the legendary Fox Theater in Atlanta, where some truly amazing concerts have happened, and that is my sort of mecca as a big music fan, like Prince's last concert was at the Fox. Name a big act when they want to do something someplace small and intimate and it'd be a truly, truly beautiful building. So not that this is supposed to be a plug for the Fox, but please do go there if you appreciate music and incredibly beautiful historic theaters. The name Pacquiao is exceptionally well known, but because when you're buying those tickets, if you're buying tickets for a concert at the Fox, we want that experience to be all about the Fox. Not so if you look down, if anybody in payments knows you are properly disclosing that the site is powered by Pacquiao and that we're handling the back end and the payments. But we want your user experience to be all about getting excited to go see something at the Fox or all excited about going to a Michigan football game. That name uh, and that experience was much more out front than our company name. I think that people don't realize that you guys are as big as you are and that you uh, represent a lot of really big you know, sports brands, and you've got to see a lot of incredible concerts as well as sporting <laughs> events. As a perk of your job, you mentioned that you guys are a primary ticket um, seller. I know what that means, but I don't think everyone does. And I've definitely come across this 
with vendors and other merchants who are, oh, ticketing is ticketing. And I'm, no, it's actually not. There's a big difference between primary and secondary. Secondary really just came around was it 15-ish years ago? Could you just quickly explain the difference between those two? The perception of secondary and anyone, I think the use of the, the word secondary has actually was just listening to something on my on the radio in my car earlier about back in the days of Shakespeare, there mm-hmm. were people reselling tickets for speeches to famous. Tickets have always been resold, have those marketplaces organized and formalized and become household names in ways that they never were. I mean, that has definitely evolved much more recently, since I've been in the industry since about 2008. So primary ticketing is essentially you are buying directly from the venue, from the official ticketing provider. In some cases, that might be the venue, that might be the team, might be the school, might be the promoter directly, but whomever is um, the owner of those seats originally as the show was mapped out as the how many people, how many rows fit in here with the lights or the pyro or the special effects or, or whatever it may be, that primary initial sale is primary ticketing. Anything resale, which can be from organized marketplaces or it can be, which I don't recommend, but from a guy on Craigslist, what could go wrong with that? You don't recommend the guy on Craigslist, not the yeah, marketplace. Said, yeah. We have friends organized that might get a little mad. Yeah. <laughs> organized marketplaces that have buyer guarantees that have brought a lot of safety to the resale of tickets, mm-hmm. regardless of what you may think about it and opinions still on the primary side vary greatly. Some have really embraced the secondary marketplaces and have embraced and said, well, resale has always existed. We're going to find ways to make it safer. We're going to find ways to both protect the consumer and potentially protect the venues and the primary sellers. Others are still very much against the resale of tickets. I do have to tread carefully because opinions really uh, vary widely. But yes, to be clear, I was advising that do not meet up with a guy in a trench coat in an alley who's going to give you a great deal on Hamilton tickets. A lot can can and, and will probably go wrong with that transaction. Technically, that is the resale of a ticket that was purchased from the primary providers, which would have been us. And from a fraud perspective, your issues vary. I mean, there's a lot of similarities and there's actually a lot of crossover because you might see the fraudster when they're getting the tickets and the marketplace may see the fraudster when they're trying to sell the tickets. There's definitely crossover and we'll talk about ways that you guys are collaborating on that. There's some benefits to you guys being primary because you can pull them back, whereas they don't really actually own the seat. I know some of that just from working with you guys. How would you say that fraud fighting for the primary side is different than the secondary side. It's a different point of transaction for us. What we would consider buyer fraud would be for a secondary marketplace would be seller fraud. The risk uh, to us or to our client is potentially a chargeback, mm-hmm. turning away fans at the door who are very, very frequently not the bad guy. And we know that the person who shows up with the tickets sometimes is the, is the bad guy, but most often it's also mm-hmm. a victim in a situation where there are multiple victims. But even in the most basic definition of what is buyer fraud for us, for a secondary marketplace, that's seller fraud for them. What may be the buyer is illegitimate, the buyer is using a stolen credit card, the buyer is doing something that they should not be doing when they're buying from us. The person who buys that ticket on secondary market may be a perfectly legitimate customer, is not involved in anything nefarious, is not doing anything wrong. Those secondary marketplaces, uh, at least and some do a better job at it, frankly, than others, but it's, it's their responsibility to transact honestly with that buyer. The ones who are, are good and collaborate well need to also should have an open dialogue with us on the primary side. If uh, a bad actor comes along and attempts to buy tickets uh, from me on the primary side with a stolen credit card, my obligation is to our clients, first and mm-hmm. foremost, 
to identify that fraud and to either stop the transaction from happening or identify it before the event ever happens. I, I'm not without sympathy for the fact that on the secondary, so that may leave their buyer, who I don't know. I don't even know in many cases unless mm. we have a direct relationship that that buyer even exists. So hey, I have so no way to find the ticket and then yep. the buyer already bought it and they go to the concert weeks or months or whatever to go and, and it has no value. It's been taken away because it was originally bought with a stolen credit card. But it does still impact us on yeah. the primary side because who are they face-to-face with? They're face-to-face with the window staff at that stadium. <sighs> right. This is their dream rivalry game. This is their concert of a lifetime. And they've driven from eight hours away to go away thinking that they were going to get in. We would be remiss uh, even though we didn't transact with that person in any way whatsoever. They didn't give their money to us. They maybe some we can help them figure out who they did give their money to and give them some advice mm-hmm. on how to handle it. But our hands are really tied, yet we're the ones who are face to face with them. We're the ones who are dealing sometimes with someone who's in tears, someone who's screaming, someone who's thought they were gonna have this great experience only to find out when they hear that scammer deep and and you know, they get told mm-hmm. that no, this ticket isn't valid and they've got to go to the box office and Try and get to the bottom on it, of it at a time that's very busy. Gates mm-hmm. have just opened, doors have just opened, there's a rush of people. There's so much going on um, for venue staff at that time. I think they do a really admirable job of trying their best to help people navigate a problem that if they weren't sympathetic and if they weren't really concerned with fan experience, they could look at people and say that you didn't buy from us, that's not our problem. Right. You know, our, our guys would never do that. But they're also limited in how they can help. That's one of the ways in which primary does get affected by what happens with the secondary. We benefit from it when secondaries do very well and they're cautious and they have really good procedures in place. But we also are on the front lines too of dealing with it sometimes when they don't. For anyone who cares about terms, what Holly was describing was triangulation. It's something I've talked about in a previous uh, podcast, actually, about a personal friend of mine that uh, accidentally did that with a coffee maker, but I first learned about triangulation from our dear friend, Brian Wilk, who passed away two years ago, but uh, when he was at one of the theme parks, and then he ended up going to one of, if not the biggest secondary market, and he you know, was really passionate about triangulation because it obviously really impacted them at the secondary market, but also even at the theme park. This was 10 plus years ago. Now, triangulation, we see it on all kinds of products, but the first time I really identified it, it was really on event ticketing and theme parks, et cetera, with, and travel as well, sees a lot of triangulation. When I was at the online travel agency, creating the friendly fraud process, I saw that there a lot too, where the fraudsters, the one purchasing the tickets. I think now people know that that's a risk, but they often don't think it's that big of a risk. And obviously then we've also got people who are duplicating tickets. The triangulation is probably one of the biggest issues that at least I've seen from an outside perspective on event ticketing. Other things in event ticketing, I mean, it's one of the industries with some of the most complex fraud issues, partially because of the nature of the products. They're digital, they're instant delivery, they're in high demand, depending on the team or the venue or the musician. And partially also because of the sophistication of the fraudsters that target ticketing. Can you provide some context in addition to triangulation around the types of fraud attempts you see and what you and your team are doing on the front lines and seeing there? I've often wondered and and come close to trying to prove this theory out, right, that some of the people who target event ticketing may have once upon a time worked in event ticketing. 
maybe they had a part-time job at a box office somewhere once upon a time or something because it is a, a bit of a niche for fraudsters. I hate to talk about fraudsters specializing. I feel that's a word that should be used for people who are working hard and doing things for it, but I find it a better synonym for it. I think that there's a bit of them understanding how things work. Sometimes it's a timing thing. We are very similar to digital goods, but not quite. We bear some similarities to physical goods, but not quite. We may be shipping something out, but that something has a different tangible value than a sweater or a electric guitar or something that arrives in a box as physical goods. There's sometimes a time frame that fraudsters will attempt to to game, basically, when they try to commit fraud against event tickets, concert tickets, game tickets, is as important as what they're attempting to buy or how they're attempting to buy it because of the time frame. And because it's very clear to tell they are actively watching, as they do with everybody, they're trying to figure out what we're watching. They're trying to figure out, mm-hmm. are they looking at orders over a certain dollar threshold? Well, I just look at dollar threshold. Are they trying to protect themselves by really focusing in and maybe putting more resources towards tickets purchased closer to the event? So we'll back up when we're buying. So there's very much a, a back and forth to it. Mm-hmm. And I feel whenever I talk about it, I contradict myself quite <laughs> quite a bit in the advice that I give. I'll give advice and it's solid advice. It's advice that I feel good about giving, but I always follow it with don't write that in stone. They're going to adapt. And what was a really good strategy for you is now useful strategy. So step one of your strategy is to know that your strategy needs to be constantly evolving mm, So true. and that it's a constant cat and mouse. That's one of the ways that I think event ticketing differs a dollar dollars next to each other can mean very different things a hundred dollar take two hundred dollar orders one of them might be an elton john concert and that hundred dollar ticket isn't in the rafters it's the last and that hundred dollar ticket might also be yeah for baby shark live and it's in the front row where it's a fan experience (laughs) even in dollars they're definitely not apples to apples one is going to be much more desirable to a fraudster and the Mm -hmm. other isn't if you were just looking at it on its face value in terms of each of those being a hundred dollar ticket out of the gate, you're making a big mistake in how you determine the risk around um, that particular event. And that can extend outward to different geographic areas, different buildings, that particular building and where it's located at the major market. Every event that that particular building has might be higher profile to fraudsters than Mm -hmm. a building somewhere else in the country, regardless of the differences between the desirability of shows, the desirability of inventory, you can never really sit back and and think that you've figured it out with anything that happens in our industry as far as protecting against fraud. You and other people in ticketing too are walking encyclopedias about this stuff. I think I've mentioned before on previous podcasts that the week that the world shut down, when the NBA stopped and all of that, and you can talk about it better than anyone and better than I can, but I got so many emails from a lot of you in the industry of, okay, well, let's hop on a phone call together. And we still have that every other week. I really had a front row seat to how COVID has impacted things, but you guys really are such good encyclopedias about the most fraudulent concerts, which means generally that those are the most in demand or those are the ones that consumers will pay the most for above the primary ticket price. This isn't a question that I thought of before the interview, but I do think it'd be really good for you to share how COVID did impact you guys. I keep meaning to go back and listen to that first recorded because I recorded the first meeting so that people who couldn't come, you know, could listen to it. And I keep meaning to go back and maybe think about scrubbing the names out and any identifiers and um, putting it on the podcast as an episode because I just think it'd be such a time capsule. If you don't mind kind of sharing how that impacted 
you guys in the space. I think your mention of March Madness was a perfect segue for this. It mm-hmm. is, I will remember where I was the day that they shut down March Madness, similarly to the way older generations will say they remember where they were what, for the moon landing or for the JFK assassination, not to con- like to conflate the two of them in any way whatsoever, but it, it was just surreal. I used to work with someone who was a pacer. That was just his thing when he was busy, when he was lost in thought, whatever. And I think he realized he did it, but he would be so there. He goes pacing again. I won't name names. I'll protect the innocent. But he might have worn that, that sort of a ditch in the floor that day just from the, the back and forth. They started one of those games and pulled the players off the court. And then shortly following that, the NBA announced they were suspending the NHL announced that they were suspending. I'm very fortunate that the people that I work with, I, I love family, and we were sitting around a family who had just gone, oh my gosh, was that an earthquake? What was that? What's happening? Never did anyone think, and I, I joke often about those sort of girly press conferences where they had that blue graphic that said 13 days to start, 14 days to stop the spread, and it was very mm. much a, we're all in this together, America, 14 right. days, we're going to get through it and months later now (laughs) here we are and the world is is still not back to normal i'm very fortunate that my company we have a wonderful leadership and wonderful management that guided the ship through that in a really admirable way and in a way that i'm really grateful for but it was scary it was scary for anyone in this space everything ground to a halt the chargeback side of things certainly kept us very, very busy with things being postponed and then postponed again and canceled and then maybe canceled and everything every which way in between. I could never, ever say that I'm grateful for chargeback for all humans anyway, but it is part of what my, my team does. We try to prevent the fraud as much as possible when there are chargebacks on the flip side of things. We work on that as well. Or do the payment fraud either especially in this case it wasn't about fraud as it was they wanted their money back i think you guys did a really good job of trying to be proactive on that but you were also working with your partners and some people called their bank first before they got that there were a lot of fires for you to put out for a very long time i mean in fact (laughs) you were putting out fires from all that this week while we were in the hotel with the lovely refund authorization changes that are starting to impact merchants but that's another story And and on the payment side of things, which does impact chargebacks, as you know, a lot got put on hold during COVID and it seemed to be late 2021. It's the year of the the mandate. It's the year of the card ban mandate. I should be grateful that they didn't push those things through in the midst of COVID, which was absolutely the right call. A lot of us are grateful for it, that while we're trying to navigate our ways through this, we didn't also have to deal with the fact that while nothing is selling and events aren't happening, you have to make sure that you're in compliance with X mandate from the card brands. But they didn't get canceled. They just got put off. And that's one of the things that I take pretty seriously with, with my job is to know exactly what those changes are. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they they come out buried in a 73-page document that you need to, as a subject matter expert, be sure that you are actually reading those documents when they come out. Some of them will have no bearing on you, but you need to read them all anyway because they don't come with a nice little you know, highlight that says, nope, right. this one's really important. You get to page four, <laughs> paragraph seven on this one, or you'll really regret it someday. You've really got to familiarize yourself with all of them. And that was certainly something that's always a part of my job. I certainly decided it was a a really important focus area during COVID and and as we come out of it and as we return to live events happening. I think the other real impact of it is when things started to open in limited capacity. You mentioned earlier that the desirability of the ticket might have a direct impact on 
the appeal to fraudsters. That's not always the case, too, because sometimes if something is an immediate sellout, there's nothing left to steal. There's nothing left to try to steal. Mm. So it might be the things that fall just below that uber desirability rating that also maybe get picked on as an opportunity for fraudsters to try to monetize with stolen cards. The COVID impact on that would say that you've got a theoretical thousand seat historic theater, which we don't do a lot of, but I'm going to build one in my imagination for purposes of this, of this story. <laughs> you've got a show there that maybe pre-COVID would have sold 70% of the house. The house is now, according to state regulations, only allowed to uh, have that show at 50% capacity. Right. What would have been your 70% not a sellout is now the hottest ticket in town because the venue can only sell at 50% cap. That really threw everything askew as far as desirability because things that didn't necessarily have super high desirability now, because of scarcity, they do. So I've talked to other people where, and this could, I know could be a whole other podcast that you and I have talked about quite a bit, the argument about subject matter expertise versus turning something over completely to an AI or an ML solution. Mm. <laughs> there are some people I know got burned by that, frankly. All of the reliable data was, was skewed by that, and there was no way for an automated system to, to pick it up. It had to be recognized by someone. Yeah who understood what was happening. I am always quick to say that I'm not anti-innovation in any way. I love it. I embrace it. But I still am a big believer in having somebody there who can look at situations that maybe your automated systems don't pick up quite as quickly. And in that case, desirability and systems that factor in desirability got um, way out of whack because mm. of COVID and because of those limited capacities. And consumer behavior changed so much too. I mean, it impacted a lot of different industries. And some third-party systems were quicker to adapt to that than others, which is something we talk about a lot on the calls, how important it is to know how quickly your ML system refreshes and all the other things. Mm -hmm. As you were talking about the impact of COVID, it's so funny because I've been so lucky to host this call every other week. I've really got the front row seat of it 14, 15 months with you guys. And on the refund authorization changes, we had our call on a Wednesday and one of the members was, oh my gosh, is anyone else seeing this? We thought we weren't sure when it was going into place and now our processor turned it on and now we're getting a lot of refund rejects. What do we do? And I think it was the next day you texted me and were, oh my gosh, here they are. <laughs> you didn't have them at the time of the call, but it was so helpful to hear it from other people because then you at least knew, okay, I know what's happening. And we talked as a group about some best practices around what to do about it. Do you issue checks? Do you try to call the consumers, et cetera? So I'll try to do an episode on that in the future because I know that other people are probably dealing with it too. Also talking about reopening, I know that for some of the people in your industry, they've also had to deal with, especially in stadiums. And I don't know if you have, but I know others have had to deal with the pods. So where stadiums were allowing groups of four to book, but then people would try to sell them on the secondary market with two and two. And because of social distancing, that wasn't safe. And you had to go by state guidelines too. Every single state had different guidelines and whether it was for chargebacks or refunds or rebooking things, it was a lot. I think we could totally put together, I don't know, a book or something, or at least a pretty decent article about <laughs> just the whole trajectory of that time and just how important it was to work together. To, what are you guys doing? What are you seeing? And then sharing what you seems to. We do. And there's something I have to think also what we do tends to be big stadiums and mostly larger venues, but I am also um, on the board of directors at a 
at a much smaller venue in my hometown. I was literally there watching the, the director. We were fortunate that we were able to partner with local government to do rooftop concerts because the appeal of that venue is that it has um, pristine sounds, but it's very tiny. It's a very intimate, if you're a musical, a really, truly awesome experience not compatible whatsoever with COVID and with performers. All the talk about horn players and singers are super spreaders. I can't tell you how many news stories I watched where they use some sort of glow-in-the-dark apparatus to show how far it goes when someone coughs and and all of that stuff. But I watched our our really wonderful, really dedicated director at that venue painting neon orange squares on a rooftop so that we could bring live music to that community. And I will tell you that there were people who had tears in their eyes when they heard those first notes. I try to keep that in mind. The power of what I am protecting and what my team is protecting is experiential. And I'm sure I'm biased. It was so much more valuable than a sweater that eventually I'm probably going to end up donating or I'm not going to keep my whole life. Maybe a great sweater, but I'm not going to be thinking about that sweater 30 years from now when I'm in a retirement home telling story to somebody next to me. I am going to be talking about that concert that I got into that was life-changing. I am going to be talking about that experience. You and I were talking on our trip to Vegas about years ago. I out of the back of a venue behind a Pearl Jam concert. got to have a conversation with Eddie Vedder. I'm going to remember that forever. And the value of that and how much that means to people is something I thought about every day pre-COVID. But seeing the world lose that and and lose the impact of that, I mean, it really does change lives. Live sports and live entertainment is a life-changing, transformative experience for a lot of people. It's funny when we were talking about the prep for this, and I, I wrote down a name that probably doesn't mean anything to you in the, the margin of my notes. A former ticketing director at an arena that we work with, we were going on a, a boat cruise once, and she was introducing me to people, and she said, this is Holly she stops people from stealing from us. And to this day, it is the best narrowing down of what I do <laughs> that I've ever heard, that I've ever heard from anybody. And it just meant so much to me to have her especially say that, Holly, this is Holly, she protects us. Oh. Holly, she makes sure our fans get in the doors, not the bad guy. It meant so much to me to hear that. And I think that the industry as a whole, what we lost during COVID, there's going to be a lot of people who walk, even people who aren't, uh, really emotive, I think are going to be caught by surprise when they walk into their first football game or their first hockey game or their first concert and their eyes well up because it's been such a long time and it's really been missing from people's lives. So that was probably a really rumbly answer. But it was also a very beautiful answer. Sometimes when we are just so monofocused on fraud, we don't think about the impact it has on the user, on the end user. And I think that was very beautiful. I actually wrote some of that down. How do I follow that up? Good ending. And we still have so much more to talk about. I think that similar to ticketing, there is such a high threshold of different types of complex fraud. But at the end of the day, when you have the end goal in mind, you're really just trying to protect people. I think that's what makes you propel forward and do the hard work and still answer phone calls when you're technically on PTO and all of that. And you have such good relationships with the people in your venues. It is mind-blowing. When you're talking about just the sophistication of ticketing fraud, I was thinking about, I've been so lucky to be able to work with so many different verticals and see it from 10,000 foot view. And I think the other categories of fraud that I would put in a similar bucket as ticketing as far as the sophistication of fraud and how quickly you have to act and how differently it is than physical goods that you have several days to ship and all that is gift cards and gambling and gaming, as well as peer-to-peer money transfers and all very similar to you guys. And 
often I'll hear merchants go from one vertical to another, and that's awesome. And I've done that too, but I think there has to be a reverence that it's not the same. I think there has to be an understanding that, okay, I'm going from physical goods to to digital or I'm going from digital physical, or even within physical, there's sneaker fraud is way more similar to ticketing fraud now because of that resale market, because of the secondary markets that, you know, are around that you guys are seeing very similar bot behavior. You guys are seeing very similar account takeovers and other attacks. It's definitely more sophisticated. You have to think on your feet, but I'm curious to know, you've been in this since 2008 and I've been in it since 05. So we're pretty similar and we've think we've been doing it since before PCI existed. Fraud has definitely changed and fraud fighting has changed so much over that time. And you said it so well before, step one of your strategy should be to know that your strategy will need to constantly change. What has the evolution been since you first started in fraud fighting, especially in the digital goods space? I, I think I mentioned actually when we were, were talking before we started recording too about I've been doing this since the days when when the letters PCI were not tattooed on the, the back of all of our eyelids. So we have dreamed about PCI. We hear a little voice whispering PCI in our ears. And that's not a good thing. I can make jokes about it and I, I approach all of life with some level of sarcasm uh, that I think sometimes some people confuse with pessimism. I'm, I'm very much an eternal optimist. I mean, gone are the days where you used to be able to call somebody up and say, Carice123 at gmail.com is trying really hard to steal from me today. Is she also trying really hard to steal from you? Um, you can't do that anymore. And there's really <laughs> right. good reasons why mm-hmm. we can't do that anymore and why we should all be abhorred by the fact that we ever did that once upon a time, but it was a long time ago. And, uh, and I think I said this before, especially when I had my interview with Jacqueline Hart, because she also started on the payment processing side. I did. I used to go home with, stacks of hundreds of pieces of paper of spreadsheets in Excel with full credit card numbers on it, along with the person's name and address and everything for us to re-enter, download into terminals when somebody messed up on the merchant side. That was totally normal. So this is slightly embarrassing, but I actually had to Google what PCA stands for. I could tell you almost all the regulations. I could tell you what it means, but the actual standing of it, and I think it's because it doesn't really make a ton of sense to me, but it's the payment card industry is PCI, but then the DSS is data security standards. They exist for a good reason. Yeah. Um, and it is still very possible to collaborate. And I'm a really big, very strong believer in collaboration, but we collaborate much more carefully, I would say now, mm-hmm. than we did in the beginning. For good reasons, our goals then were to protect consumers. Or our goals now are to protect consumers. We're just doing it in a way with an understanding of the, the larger side of the equation. I always tell people you, you should work closely with your network ops security teams within your company. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I've talked to people where those people and fraud people don't ever talk and that is nightmares to me. They should be having an ongoing dialogue and then the broader next follow-on to that is that there should be an ongoing dialogue. You should consider it your goal if you run fraud for whatever company that you work with that you should be an advocate. Your number one job is to be an advocate and to make sure that brand protection and protecting your customers and protecting your company and protecting your revenue is, is all something that it should be at the forefront of everyone's mind. It should not be siloed within your organization. That's, that's easier said than done. That battle may be more of an uphill battle in some companies. Companies, maybe not, maybe it's embraced, but it's never a fun conversation to have. It's not fraud, it's not a sexy revenue generator or conversation, or it can be, and it should be thought of in that way, yeah. but it's not. it's not automatically... Mm-hmm. understood that way by teams that don't have as much to do with it. So I think that that's always clear advice that I give to people is have those conversations, have marketing. I always pick up marketing. It's a big one. Mar- what does marketing they want are. to do? <laughs> marketing wants to understand consumer behavior. It's in charge of protecting mm-hmm. the brand and protecting the against fraud. 
the guys in marketing, the, the, the ladies in marketing should be your buddies because they want very similar data to what you want. They might already have it. It might be something that you're thinking you have to go out and get or you have to build something for a market. It might already and you might not even know about it until you have coffee with those people, go to a happy hour with those people, get the understanding that everybody's on the same side and really fighting the same fight and that you're not working against them and that you're not working to lower sales or bring down conversions or, or anything like that. And I'm, I'm hopping around all over the place here, but these are all things that you and I have such a great comfort level because we've known each other for a long time. That conversational attention deficit is probably something you're really used to. <laughs> you can wrangle me back to where you need me to be. I trust you to do that. But it's all stuff that I'm really passionate about and that mm-hmm. honestly, sometimes I see people doing wrong. I think way back at the beginning of the question that you originally actually did ask me, it was about, you know, working with solution providers and people changing verticals. Another really good example of where I sometimes contradict myself and advice to people I'm mentoring or people newer to the industry is first talk to the people who do exactly what you do. Very comfortable talking regularly to people who are in the sports and entertainment space and who are in ticketing, but don't stop there. Expand your circles outward from there. You could start a call on I don't know, you could start a, a merchant collaboration call on house paint. Uh, and it's the first word that popped into my head. And I would be the first one saying, Carice, put me on that call. It has nothing to do with my day-to-day whatsoever. But I am looking to always learn, to always network, to always have relationships with people that maybe there might be something that I see a couple of months down the road. And I'll go, oh, so-and-so at, at a company that sells physical goods knows a little something about this and because of the fact that I want to to learn and not just learn in a very from a very narrow perspective, I think makes me better at what I do and at what at, at what I'm charged with protecting. So um, I think when people make those moves, sometimes if they take that strategy with them, I'm all for making those moves and moving from one vertical to another. But don't assume that the fraud tool that was great for you in X industry is going to be great for you if you move over to from physical goods to digital goods or from digital goods to ticketing or from ticketing to gaming. I think that's a pet peeve of mine that I'll feel lazy in that sense. You need well, to you know, I feel goods. exactly the same yeah. way. I was about to be one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> Thinking back about when we were talking about how much the industry has changed in the last 13, 14 years. I mean, the tools. I mean, we only had one case management system available to us in 2009. And now you can have indemnification, you can have non-indemnification, you can have a hybrid of rules and AI, well, ML, let's not get ahead of ourselves with AI yet. Or you can have just one or the other, or and, the, and some of them have evolved more than others. Some of them are much better for digital goods than physical goods. And I think that that's something that we've talked about quite often. And honestly, a lot of vendors just get tunnel vision and want to provide their services to every merchant without understanding if their solution actually is the best one for that vertical, because fraud is so different in different verticals. I 100% back you up on that. That's why I don't actually have a referral agreement with any one specific fraud provider, because depending on the merchant and their problems and their average order value and all the other things, I'm going to have a different answer. I mean, there's probably three or four that I uh, most commonly will recommend when asked, but I've been very candid with those three or four. I will not be sending everyone to you. And I think you and I are able to see that, and we, but we have seen people go from one type of company to the other and just be like, well, I know those guys, so I'm just going to plug it in. And not all fraud third-party providers are created equal. And that's something I'm probably going to be saying on my deathbed. <laughs> I'm not talking bad about anyone specific one. I mean, there are definitely some that overpromise and underdeliver, And to them, merchants talk. But 
for the moment. Well, should talk. And they should. Some, yes. some verses don't talk as much as they should, but someone who's friendly on the downside of talking, talking, and, yes. and more talking. <laughs> From both of us. I think people are getting that now. Just expanding on collaboration. When I was at the trade association, I really got a front row seat to three of the biggest, if not the biggest ticketing companies coming together and working together in ways that no other vertical had. And you, you know, quickly were added on to that because you're also, you know, a major primary account. And now there's, I don't know, 15, 20 ticketing companies that work together. Some work together much closely than others. But thinking back on it was really what made me crazy passionate about collaboration because I saw down to the tactical stuff, the same, what you said at the very beginning, how your buyer fraud is their seller fraud. So being able to pre-PCI say, hey, do you have an order from this person and that person, et cetera? You guys have since found other ways without giving away anything that is very PCI compliant, but to be able to do something similar to that that helps more on the technology side. But then beyond the specific information, it's the behavior, it's the it's the motive, it's the tactics, it's the behind the scenes, it's the payments regulation stuff. It's all those things that you guys are either seeing the same side of the coin or the opposite side of the coin. And it is critical. I have so many stories that I've just witnessed from the outside on how good that's been for you guys. Could you expand on that more? I drank that Kool-Aid a long time ago, but I'd love for you to share just a couple of the things that really have helped you guys so much on the collaboration side. Even though gone are the days of, of being able to call somebody up and say, you know, hold one, two, three, if you know, today, <laughs> what is helping you? What can you learn? We, we do talk um, amongst ourselves quite a bit. And it's funny because in ticketing, I can't tell you how many sales pitches I've gotten where somebody says, we work with a ton of event ticketing companies and I'm mm-hmm. on my own. I know them all, right? I talk to them all and we are, call it whatever you want to call it. Some of us compete more directly against each other. Some of us are in, you know, niches with smaller venues where we're, we're theoretically competitors, but not really competitors. But still, people hop around, especially quite a bit in my industry, including the, the venues and the clients that we work with. And in many cases, we are responsible for both being able to conduct ourselves in a B2B sense. Our venues are, are technically our customers, but we are every bit as much acting as them when we, when we interact with those customers. If we cancel a ticket because we can't verify the transaction, we are very much having to behave in a B2C way just mm-hmm. as much as we do in a B2B way. And being able to have those conversations amongst ourselves, I think, is very helpful. Did you evaluate this? Did you heaven knows I am not the biggest fan of of demos. Sometimes I am, you know, but there's too many, especially around conference season, which isn't a thing that happens because of COVID. You can maybe call somebody up that I know well and say, did you demo this? What did you think of it? What questions did you ask? What questions occurred to you after you sat through a demo over it that you went, oh, I forgot to ask that. I'll ask it for you. Did you do a proof of concept? How did it work? Mm -hmm. Those things, I, I think that it is underestimated how much those conversations occur. And I think that that should be seen as a very good thing for third-party providers because if they are providing the best service from their sales reps all the way through to develop, to implementation and then account management, et cetera, that 
it's going to serve you very, very well. And it has, I've seen it happen so many times, but it also happens on the flip side too. We decide against them because of X, Y, Z, or once they're, (laughs) you and I have a running joke and there's a few other people that also have a similar joke that there's at least one provider that if you get on their radar, they'll try to butter you up first and send you gifts. And if you don't (laughs) uh, give in to whatever, then they will find out who your boss is and they will either tell your boss that you're horrible at your job or they will butter up your boss. It's known. These are people who look at details all the time for work and we are trained to recognize social engineering tactics, sales tactics and sales books and all that are social engineering. I think it's so good for someone who's been in this industry as long as you have, who knows as much as you do to really say, this is what has helped me do my job the best and to keep my my clients safe, my venue safe. It provides a really great amount of professional insulation, I would, will say against buzzwords. I understand that things are becoming more automated and people conflating. You mentioned AI and ML. What is my first recommendation whenever somebody says to me, how do I understand these things? Is understand that they're two very different things. Yep. So go forth and get yourself an understanding of each of them because they're not interchangeable. But they are very much buzzwords now. And I think some people who, again, if I were um, being a a little more pessimistic than I usually am, would say that it's maybe a bit of laziness. And you and I both know that some of these companies spend a tremendous amount of money on SEO and on being the very person that you see when you Google, help, I have fraud, help, I have chargebacks, what do I, and some of them have very, very slick, very convincing salespeople. We work with some really wonderful solution providers and there's some that I don't work with that I would love to. Then I know other merchants work with and they're really happy and they're good people and they have a great product, not just a sales team selling a not so great product. But having those collaborative relationships within the same vertical, outside of your vertical is going to insulate you against that. You don't have to go out and become a full-fledged data scientist to, to understand automation and some of the, the newer innovations in fraud protection. But I would argue that you have a responsibility if you're someone who's responsible for protecting your brand, protecting your customers, protecting your revenue, to understand what those things are. Because how, if you don't at least have a basic understanding of what they are and how they work, and that not all of them are created equal, how are you going to evaluate them? You shouldn't be intimidated by them as something that's necessarily coming to cut your team in half or potentially threaten. Maybe I'm a little bit spoiled in that sense that I work for a really great company with great leadership that I have never felt that way. I've always felt really fully supported and wanting to learn everything that I can learn and in being encouraged to speak, encouraged to mentor other people either within the industry or outside of the industry. And I understand that not everybody has that. So I'm, I'm super grateful for it. But all of that comes from collaboration. There's no way. And I know that you mentioned Ryan earlier. I will mention Ryan as well. He is dearly missed. And he was a big part of everyone ticketing, working as closely together as, as we do. And he and plus he was an Eagles fan. So one of the many reasons <laughs> have to get that. why I love Ryan with, with all my heart. He was just a really good guy. And he and his impact will will last for a very, very long time on the state of fighting fraud in general, not just in event ticketing, but even radiating outward from from that in a really, really wonderful way that has saved a lot of experiences and a lot of consumers from a, a whole lot of hurt. So um, mm. that's his legacy. And I, I think of it often when I, when I think of him. We definitely wasn't lost on this. The last time we had been in Las Vegas was the last time we saw him before he passed away. And that was something I've talked about his impact on my career previously on the podcast. I don't generally 
mention names on the podcast to protect the innocent, but because he's no longer with us, I, I feel it's my duty to carry on his legacy. There have been specific stories where there's been a lot of crossover. So there are so many generalized things but from best practices to narrowing down the vendor market because of VC money. There's so many now narrowing them down with each other and knowing what to expect. And okay, we don't have that problem now, but we may have it soon. Let's end it on not a fun note, but for those of us in fraud, it is fun. Some specific cases where either collaboration has been really important. And I know there are some cases with law enforcement that you can't talk about, but specifically anyways, where that's been good and or just overall fraud cases you've had that have been memorable. I think that's always everyone's favorite questions on this as a plug for when conferences return, because it's always so much more fun <laughs> when you can protect the innocent a little bit better than something that's going to be uh, made a memorial. That calls for good reason. <laughs> Those are the things too, I think, that make the job worth it too. Mm-hmm. And we all, and if anybody too, who works in fighting fraud, you understand for very understandable reasons that it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get, sometimes to get law enforcement to take action on <laughs> things. Not because um, they are not incredibly dedicated and in most cases, really wonderful people who are, are doing their best, but because there's just so much of it. Yeah. That's another piece that there's I didn't really touch on when talking yeah. about, yeah, when talking about collaboration is that mm. you've got in some cases have big numbers. No, those numbers aren't necessarily in our case quite a bit. That's fraud that we stopped, mm-hmm. but that still because it was attempted, we can tie a dollar amount to it, even though it didn't go through. We were able right. to avoid the tickets. We were able to sell the ticket to a real fan all went well on the side of, of protecting the fan experience for us. But we still know that it happened, even if we did work it and were able to share that information with law enforcement. And maybe I might have X amount of dollars from our particular fraudster. That's a decent amount, but ticketing company B might have their X number of attempts or their X number of right. quantity of tickets, dollars attempted, whatever. We learned early on that we can pool those, and then that is much more attractive to getting law enforcement to take action when we're able to combine those and still not share information with each other that we're not supposed to be able to share, but know enough that we can go to law enforcement and say, hey, we think we've got collectively what is the same fraud ring, and then we're able to, through official channels, share much more of that data with law enforcement acting as a point person to coordinate all of it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we can see, I think, when you first start working in fraud, who's the first guy? It's always unfairly uh, a guy, so we'll, we'll say first lady fraudster. Very cute. You put behind bars who that person is, and that's such, mm-hmm. a, such a moral victory, and it's so good for your spirit to see the ultimate end result. Not that it's not good on a day-to-day basis to stop fraudulent transactions from going right. through and to, to protect your brand, but when you see it follow all the way through to that ultimate end, and it's rare. Yeah, it's wonderful. Not it is very rare. Get to. Yeah, but because, and I'm so glad you brought that up, like the ticketing industry has worked so closely together. That is a benefit that has happened over the years as well as some of the bigger cases. Sometimes they get attached to one specific merchant, but often there were a lot of you providing information as well. And you're able to map out their entire journey from when they purchased the tickets to when they tried to sell the tickets or when they tried to purchase the tickets and when they tried to sell the tickets they're often not successful i think that we probably could have just had an entire episode on why collaboration is so important because <laughs> that would have been easy but do you mind sharing a specific example or two of a time either when you guys have worked together on something or fraudster behavior that you've observed either at your own company or through others in your space the other nice thing too about it is that we have to protect uh, consumer data, but when we know stuff about a specific fraudster, 
we've we've got one specifically in event ticketing that I talked to uh, a, a secondary marketplace that we we partner with mm-hmm. that we we know we follow him on Instagram. We know when he gets another really bad tattoo, we're all sending each other pictures, going, "Oh God, he keeps." Or we we know who his Facebook friends are. We know. And in this particular instance, I don't want to say too much in the way of specifics about this person, but that on days when maybe there's a little bit of monotony in the job or there's not much happening, maybe it's a slow day. It's both good for morale. It's good purely, honestly, for entertainment value. Mm-hmm. Not as nigh that maybe some people haven't photoshopped him into some holiday pictures or some <laughs> other things. I need that mm-hmm. to, to energize me. That, that's certainly something that I try to bring back in-house with my team and to share even with other teams. We didn't get to talk too much really about intra-company advocacy, right? And being sure of the why fraud is important. Like, yeah. you know, lots to say yes. um, on that and lots of success stories. It's You're one of the best me, but. people I know about that as far as working within the company. And I mean that. And so... Mm-hmm. Yes, I would love to have you come back and do another episode. Speaking about that specific person, we were on a ticketing call months ago and you and else were talking about him. I genuinely thought you guys were talking about like somebody that you guys both knew as a friend. <laughs> I was, oh, who's that? That's a name I haven't heard before in the industry. <laughs> you guys were like, oh, it's a fraudster we have all the time. We talked about some of his behavior patterns because, you know, as those of us who fight fraud know, it just like consumers, all humans have patterns. As fraud fighters, we get used to patterns. Let's be clear. I mean, you mentioned it already, but you can add up the attempts. So (laughs) this guy isn't actually the smartest person in the world. He really doesn't realize how easy he is to catch at this point for you guys. It was hilarious because you guys were talking about an old friend that you had together, but maybe had moved on from the industry or something like that. Holly, I would love to have you back on any time and especially some, I hope people have just seen some of your superpowers, but one of them, absolutely. When I am asked, how do I collaborate internally or there's other things that you're my go-to. I mean, when I, I love being the conduit for fraud or the people connector, and I definitely consider you one of the more senior experts. And I think another reason why I do is because just as much as you love sharing information, you love to learn because you know, the second you think, oh, I know everything is the minute that you stop learning and that you won't be able to keep up with them. I think it's equally important. Thank you for having me. I, I know that I love sharing with you because one of your superpowers is talking to more human beings probably in a day than I talk to you in six months at a time. So if I'm sharing good intel with you, I know I'm sharing it farther and wider than I probably would be able to do on my own. Thank you so much. I am so grateful and I hope everybody really knows how lucky they are to uh, learn everything from you. And I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the uh, show notes so people connect can connect directly with you. And yeah, thank you so much. And I hope that we'll be able to get sometime where we're both available to do this again so we can dive into internal collaboration because I think that's a question I get all the time and it's something that I think that you have a lot of wisdom on. It was a pleasure. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.